following message is presented by Fellowship Bible Church from its weekly pulpit ministry. We offer an expositional study through entire books of the Bible, one verse, paragraph, or chapter at a time. We pray that you'll be blessed by listening in. Thanks for visiting. All right, welcome this evening. Sorry we're getting a late start here, but we're having a lot of good conversation while we're delaying. So welcome to those of you online to church service tonight. Fellowship Bible Church is online and ready to go. And we're glad for you being here tonight at the building and for you being online watching. We have a good little crowd here tonight. Let's turn our Bibles to Isaiah 28, please. We're still trekking through Isaiah, and this has a a nice little section in it for us. Although it's a lengthier chapter, a little bit, compared to this morning's. We're still in the book of Judgment, the first uh, portion of Isaiah's prophecy. Chapter 28, woe to the crown of pride to the drunkards of Ephraim, whose glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valleys. To those who are overcome with wine, behold, the Lord has a mighty and strong one, like a tempest of hail and a destroying storm, like a flood of mighty waters overflowing, who will bring them down to the earth with his hand. The crown of pride, the drunkards of Ephraim will be trampled underfoot. And the glorious beauty is a fading flower, which is at the head of the verdant valley, like the first fruit before the summer, which an observer sees. He eats it up while it is still in his hand. And that day the Lord of hosts will be for a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people, for a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment, and for strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate." But they also have erred through wine, and through intoxicating drink are out of the way. The priest and the prophet have erred through intoxicating drink. They are swallowed up by wine. They are out of the way through intoxicating drink. They err in vision. They stumble in judgment. For all tables are full of vomit and filth. No place is clean. Whom will he teach knowledge? And whom will he make to understand the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just drawn from the breasts, for precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Now this is a judgment passage, by the way, notice, for with stammering lips and another tongue, he will speak to this people. Remember how we referenced that verse in 1 Corinthians chapter 14 about the judgment purpose of tongues? To whom he said, this is the rest with which you may cause the weary to rest, and this is the refreshing. Yet they would not hear, but the word of the Lord was to them, precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they might go and fall backward and be broken and snared and caught. Therefore hear the word of the Lord, you scornful men who rule this people who are in Jerusalem, because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and and with Sheol we are in agreement. When the overflowing scourge passes through, it will not come to us. You see what that is, that, that covenant with death, that agreement with Sheol? They are going to avoid death and Sheol for a time, they think. When it comes, when this scourge passes through, it's not going to come to us. 
For we have made lies our refuge, and under falsehood we have hidden ourselves. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone for a foundation, a tried stone, a precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Whoever believes will not act hastily, and I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the plummet. The hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the hiding place. Your covenant with death will be annulled, and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overflowing scourge passes through, then you will be trampled down by it. See, when they made that agreement with death, as they say, they didn't consult with an important party in the situation, God. So they had to, uh, God had to annul their, their invalid covenant. Verse 19, as often as it goes out, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass over, and by day and by night, it will be a terror just to understand the report. For the bed is too short to stretch out on, and the covering so narrow that one cannot wrap himself in it. For the Lord, Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be angry as in the valley of Gibeon, that he may do his work, his awesome work, and bring to pass his act, his unusual act. Now therefore, do not be mockers, lest your bonds be made strong, for I have heard from the Lord of hosts a destruction determined even upon the whole earth. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my speech. Does the plowman keep plowing all day to sow? Does he keep turning his soil and breaking the clods? When he has leveled its surface, does he not sow the black cumin and scatter the cumin, plant the wheat in rows, the barley in, its, in the appointed place, and the spelt in its place? For he instructs him in right judgment, and his God teaches him. For the black cumin is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over the cumin, but the black cumin is beaten out with a stick and the cumin with a rod. Bread flour must be ground, therefore he does not thresh it forever, break it with his cartwheel or crush it with his horsemen. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who is wonderful in counsel and excellent in guidance. Okay, wow. Well, there would take a little more study there to untangle all of that. I'm sure you would agree with me but at least we're getting ourselves a little more familiar with it. Okay, um, let me shift gears. I had a question this morning, uh, or from this morning's message that I received, and I just thought I'd touch on it here this uh, evening. I mentioned this morning about uh, the example of Lazarus being raised from the dead as a uh, lesser resurrection than what we're talking about in 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, you remember? So in 1 Corinthians 15, we're talking about the resurrection of Christ and those after they die to their state, their heavenly state, their glorified body. The resurrection I, I mentioned of Lazarus and others like him was to a natural body, I said, and I supposed that they had to experience again death after they had that uh, first death and resurrection. And the question was, is there any proof of that uh, in the scriptures of that assertion? Or, or basically, is it kind of an argument from silence? And I would agree in some, to some extent that there's a good deal of silence on the matter. After Lazarus was raised, what about him? Doesn't tell us how long he lived, what he looked like, how he behaved. Uh, similarly, 
you have the, the uh, kind of conundrum of the saints that were resurrected in Matthew 27, 52, right around the time of the Lord's death and resurrection. They came out of the graves and went into the holy city. It's just like one tantalizing verse that you wish you could have just, you know, had a film crew there to uh, film all of that. Uh, very interesting situation. You have other cases in the Old Testament. You have uh, the boy who uh, was uh, raised by Elisha. You remember him? He uh, was a special gift, really, of God to the Shunammite woman who was childless. And then she had that boy, and then he passed away. Uh, he was out in the field with his father, you remember, when he took ill, and they took him back home, and he died there after being with his mother for some time. And she was, of course... Uh, traumatized by that. Well, the little boy was raised and apparently lived uh, after that sometime in a kind of normal life. Uh, the most um, kind of maybe odd, sin- well, all resurrections are odd, okay? I just put it out there. But the real weird situation was when uh, fellows were hastily doing a burial and they threw a guy into the grave with Elisha's bones and he revived and jumped to his feet. Get me out of this grave. <laughs> I don't know what he said exactly, but uh, that's, that's probably what I would have said. <laughs> Get me out of here. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, in any case, uh, so were these, were these folks resurrected to permanent bodies, a li- permanent life, uh, and never to die again? It seems, I've always thought not, and I had to think through this a little bit more carefully. The strongest piece of evidence that I would say for my, my understanding, although again, there's a great deal of silence about it, is 1 Corinthians 15 and verse, I think it's 19. I'm just going to turn there to make sure I have the address correct in my mind. 1 Corinthians uh, 15. Um, I said 19, but it's not 19. It's actually verse 20. It says there, Christ, but now Christ is risen from the dead and has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. So my understanding has been informed by that verse that Christ is the first fruits of this kind of resurrection that I was talking about this morning, the elevated kind or the greater kind of resurrection. He's the first of that kind, and then uh, he is the as the first kind of the uh, sign of things to come, <clears throat> that many others will be resurrected like him. Because of that, the ones who are resurrected before him, I think, were resurrected to natural bodies and, and, and were somewhat, somehow, fundamentally unlike uh, Jesus' resurrection and not outfitted for eternal existence. Could there be some variation on that? Certainly, the silence in the Scripture does give us pause to give some leeway or latitude on on the details, but that is my understanding of that situation. So, first fruits idea probably is the strongest that I have uh, to support the understanding that I alluded to this morning. It's not really a major point. I don't want us to get hung up on it and uh, and side and not sidetracked. But uh, you know, resurrections are exceptional events. Uh, you have similar situation with Enoch and Elijah being translated, caught up to heaven. Those two exceptions to the rule of uh, once to die and then the judgment. And then you have these number of cases. I, I don't know how many there are, but there's uh, 
There's one in 1 Kings, the one in 2 Kings, the other one I think is in 2 Kings with the man and, and Elisha's bones. And then you have Dorcas or Tabitha who was raised, Peter. You have the young girl in the Gospels. You have the son of the uh, widow of Nain. Um, you have those saints at man, Matthew 27, 52, I think it is. Uh, what am I missing, anyone's? Um, resurrections. Okay, the, the question is, was Samuel a resurrection? I don't believe Samuel was a resurrection because she, uh, the, um, the witch at Endor saw a, a kind of an apparition of him or saw his spirit, but it doesn't tell us that his body was there physically present. So I don't think that was a resurrection, although you could say it was a quasi-resurrection perhaps. He was called up, he was disturbed from his, from his eternal rest. Um, so that's a, that's a good catch there, a good, good, uh, good reminder. So uh, you're talking about less than 10 uh, resurrections. Uh, Lazarus, of course, we mentioned. So not, very, uh, not a very frequent event, certainly. But there comes a time when all those who are in the graves will hear his voice. And then resurrection will become a, actually numerically a very common thing. Can you imagine that? Bodily resurrection becoming like, well, that's just what happens. That's just because 1 Corinthians 15, as we're going to get into it, is going to show us, along with other portions of Scripture, that all will be raised. Christ, uh, as in Adam, all die, so in Christ, all will be made alive all including even unbelievers who will face judgment. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's kind of too big to wrap your head around in a sense, isn't it? It's just uh, quite something. So, All right, let's turn to Matthew chapter 4, please. Unless there are any other follow-ups, any other follow-up questions to those or anything else at all bothering you that you've just been wondering? <laughs> All right, Matthew chapter 4. We continue in, then in our series in the Gospel of Matthew. We've looked at the birth narrative, the early life of Jesus, the worship of the wise men from the east, the attempt that Herod made on the life of the child, the flight into Egypt, the return, the parallelism between Jesus and Israel in that sense that he came out of Egypt, that he's called the Son of God. He is the Son of God. We saw about the introduction of John the Baptist, uh, suddenly appearing in the wilderness, baptizing. And then we saw Jesus appear for public ministry, starting in Matthew 3.13, being baptized by John, being associated with or showing solidarity with the message of John and the people of John who were repentant. And I couldn't help but, but think of the correlation of what we've been preaching here with what Mike Brunk said this morning in Psalm 50 and how he was talking about those who are truly penitent, not merely those who are uh, doing the religious rituals, doing the sacrifices, but those who are truly repentant and contrite in their hearts. In a sense, to use what Solomon said, there's kind of nothing new under the sun. God has been looking for people to worship him who are contrite and penitent from the very beginning. I mean, can you imagine... Righteous Abel, 
not being penitent? No, he was a godly man, and godly people are repentant for their sin. Or can you imagine Moses or Abraham or Noah or Job or Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah being impenitent? Or David? You see David's penitence, his repentance in Psalm 51 and Psalm 32. Godly people are that way, and God seeks such to worship him. And so the Lord Jesus connects to that message that John offered to the people, calling them to repent and do works befitting repentance. So Jesus' ministry has been inaugurated, as it were, just in a very initial way in chapter 3, but now in chapter 4 there's going to be a test. And that test is going to demonstrate to us that Jesus is in fact qualified to be our Savior, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So this section is about the temptation of Jesus. It's not about the last temptation of Christ. You remember that title? Some of you might remember. It's a film that was released in 1988. I think it was directed by Scorsese. And it was a blasphemous, blasphemous film. Imagining uh, temptations of Christ in his mind that are not recorded in the Bible and in fact could not have occurred because he was impeccable and would not have allowed his mind to go to the places where that movie portrayed his mind to be going. That film portrays imaginary events. What we're talking about here this evening is the biblical material on the incident of Jesus being confronted by the evil one, by Satan, by the devil himself, and being victorious over that temptation with which he was faced. Now, we, I'll outline the chapter briefly for you in three parts. Number one, Jesus passes the test of the wilderness temptation in verses 1 to 11. That's what we're going to look at tonight. Then Jesus moves to Capernaum and Galilee, verses 12 to 16, and we'll combine that with the third major point. Jesus preaches repentance and calls his disciples, starting in verse 17, through the end of the chapter, at which point then Matthew turns to presenting the Sermon on the Mount, uh, 5, 6, and 7, a lengthy uh, recording of a sermon of our Lord Jesus. I want to just draw your attention before we get into the meat of this to another famous incident that will help us by way of contrast to understand better what is happening here. You know that Jesus, verse 1 says, was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, the Bible says afterward he was hungry, no doubt. Now when the tempter came to him, he said, If you are the Son of God, command that these stones become bread. And I will pick up there in a moment. Think with me about where Jesus is at the time that these events occur. Where does the Bible say that he was? Did you notice that? In the wilderness, right? There was another testing that happened years and years and years earlier, and it happened not in a wilderness, but in a garden. 
And it says in Genesis chapter 3, the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So see, he extends this fake carrot out to her and says, here's going to be the reward if you disobey God. Here's what the good result is going to be, so-called good result. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And God called out to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. Well, he wasn't afraid yesterday. Why was he afraid now? Because, he said, I was naked and I hid myself. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? And the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. The Lord said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Now he's going to go backwards through the... the Offenders, will say, serpent, and then back to the man and nature. He said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception, In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he will rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife, and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face... You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. We'll stop there. Genesis 3 and Matthew 4. Adam and Eve were in the Garden of Eden. Jesus was in no garden. He was in the wilderness. In that garden, Adam and Eve's needs were met entirely. Jesus Christ in the wilderness was starved for 40 days and 40 nights. Adam and Eve expressed doubt of God's word and disobedience. Jesus expressed confidence in God's word and obedience to it. Adam and Eve failed and fell into sin. Jesus had victory and defeated the devil in his temptations. 
for Adam and Eve in the garden, the outcome was death and the curse for all of humanity. For Jesus in the wilderness, the outcome was that he pleased God and launched into his public ministry, was completely victorious over sin, and ultimately, although not here particularly, but ultimately he would bring forth life for all of humanity who believe in him. Adam and Eve were driven from the garden. Jesus, on the other hand, was delivered from the wilderness and returned back to civilization very soon after these events occurred. So there's an entirely different situation, isn't there? Entirely different outcome. Jesus, very different than Adam and Eve. We might also consider the parallel, and we will in a little bit, uh, of Jesus to the nation of Israel. Forty days for Jesus in the wilderness, 40 years for the nation of Israel in the wilderness. Perfect fidelity that the Lord Jesus expressed toward God and very faulty fidelity, if I could call it that, of the nation of Israel toward God in their wilderness experience. So in verse 1 and 2, we set the scene. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness. Ultimately, this shows us that the Spirit of God led Jesus into a situation in which he would face temptation. Does God do that? Well, evidently, he did in the life of Jesus, and I think we might do well to consider that sometimes God permits us also to come into situations where we are tested. He doesn't do so with a view to solicit us to do evil. That's what James told us when he said God does not tempt anyone to do evil. In this case, the temptation was not from the world and not from the flesh, but from the devil himself. In our case, the temptation can come from the world or our own flesh or the devil. So Jesus was led into this situation to test, to be tested by the Lord. He followed the pattern of Moses and fasted for 40 days and 40 nights. Remember Moses? What a remarkable situation that was. Let me read to you, and you don't have to turn there, but in Exodus 34 and verse 28, says Moses, of Moses, so he was there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights. He neither ate bread nor drank water. And he wrote, he, God, wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. And Moses came down uh, from the mountain. That is, a, that is a tough situation. 40 days and 40 nights, no drink, no, no food, no water. What about that? That's amazing. <clears throat> so that's the setting. And uh, he, was, uh, he was hungry. You probably uh, get a little grumpy when you're very hungry or you don't think as well as you should. Imagine this situation. Yeah. I mean, we get grumpy when we're not hungry. (laughs) Sometimes we wake up on the wrong side of the bed, so to speak. Well, that's our flesh. You know, that's a a roundabout way of saying 
I've sinned by saying I've, I've, I've woken up on the wrong side of the bed like I'm, if I'm grumpy towards other people. Uh, but the Lord was hungry. <clears throat> you see, he was tested in the most adverse circumstances. In the wilderness, starving. Adam and Eve were tested in the most beneficial circumstances. In the garden where every need was supplied, And they had each other, by the way. They weren't alone like Jesus was alone. They should have been able to be stronger than they were, but they failed. So Jesus comes into the situation, and he's going to be tested. And this is important for us to see that he passes these tests. And uh, the, the tempter comes to him and lays out to him three tests, uh, three temptations. And it is the case here that Satan is trying to solicit Jesus to do evil. He's not just testing him because he wants to see how Jesus will pass the test. He wants to get Jesus to stumble as a man. Because it is the case, although Jesus is the Son of God and was here the Son of God, and, and you know he was declared to be so in verse 17 of chapter 3, he was also a man, right? Truly a man fully a man. And so he could be, people could solicit him to do evil. Internally, he had no solicitation to do evil. That's where we talked about his impeccability before. And I might mention that again in a moment. But when the tempter came, says verse 3, he said, if you are the son of God, command that these stones become bread. So the nuance of this is not that Satan is saying, well, I'm not sure if he's the Son of God or not. He already knew this. He knew. But he's appealing to that title, that position, to kind of enhance the temptation to get Jesus to show and prove that he is who he is. And so he says, command that these stones become bread. Now, that would be, uh, that would be a very tempting situation, wouldn't it? If there is no food uh, on the table for him to partake of after being uh, hungry for those many days, uh, in a human sense, it would be very difficult to uh, you know, ignore the opportunity for there to be food. So, what's the problem here? What's the temptation here, I guess? is I mean, could Jesus create bread from stones? Yeah, he could do better than that. He could create bread from nothing. He created a whole bunch of things from nothing before. He created the whole world from nothing. Ex nihilo, a long while back, but it wasn't the time for him to create new things now. Doing so would amount to proving his deity by doing a miracle when such was unnecessary to provide the legitimate need for food. Jesus would be able to get food through other means soon enough in the near future. Jesus knew that it was not the will of the Father to provide for him food miraculously for himself. As a man, he could not do that. He would not do that. He had to trust the Father for his provision as he was soon going to teach his followers in Matthew 6. Remember what he taught them? And we'll look at it. It's hard for you to remember. We haven't gotten to the teaching of it yet, but I know you've read it. So what did he teach people? 
in Matthew chapter 6. Don't run after, you know, all the stuff the Gentiles run after. They're worried about food and clothing and shelter and all these things. But you say you trust the Lord and uh, he will add all these things to you if you put his kingdom first. So Jesus responded to him this way. By the way, uh, this, the way that I've kind of understood this, that he's, not, he's going to refuse to fall to this temptation by using his, his power to do a miracle to make food for himself, reminds me that God doesn't use miracles uh, willy-nilly. If, a, if something can be done without a miracle... God will use that method. I don't know if I can say 100% of the time, but that's generally how God works. The age of miracle, this age is not an age of miracles. The ages of miracles were, well, an initial creation of the world, uh, around the time of Moses, around the time of Elijah and Elisha, and around the time of Jesus and the apostles. Four periods in in the early church, the very early part of the church, but We'll put all those together with Jesus and the apostles. So four periods of history out of six, seven, eight thousand years of world history. That's all. So are miracles common besides regeneration? The answer is no to that. And God just doesn't work by miracle, and particularly if there are other ways for it to be done. Could uh, could. Could God provide for the whole world so that people would be uh, would not go hungry? Could He uh, could He announce over uh, some kind of you know uh, infinite public address system the gospel by an angelic voice? Yes, He could, but He doesn't do that. He uses normal means. He uses our feet to go spread the gospel. He uses our voices. He uses our technology. He uses our ability to translate and print and distribute the Bible. It's not miraculous means. These are normal means that God uses. And so that, in turn, caused me to reflect on a question that our brother asked uh, the last Q&A session we had. You know, should we pray or can we pray that God would heal by a miracle? And the answer still stands that we don't demand God to heal in any particular way. It would be good enough for me if he heals through any means that he desires, and usually that's... Uh, by normal means, it could be you know various providences involved and good providences at that, but not uh, necessary to tie God's hands and say, "Hey, I want a miracle here," when um, you know bypass surgery might do, you know, even though there's pain and suffering involved in that procedure, it's uh, the normal means that God has provided. Well at least, shall we say, in most recent history. Uh, When did bypass surgeries become uh, commonplace? Say within the last 50 years maybe or something? A hundred years ago they weren't commonplace though, right? No, certainly not. 200 years ago, no, you just had to live with the consequences of heart disease and die younger than you would have if you had access to the technology we have today. So normal means. God didn't provide supernatural means for that. So here Jesus is saying, nope, I'm going to trust God. I'm not going to use the power that is at my disposal, but I cannot use it in a way that is displeasing to God or shows a lack of trust in the Lord. And he responds to Satan with the word of God 
in verse 4, and he says, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Human life is not sustained merely by bread, is it? And by bread, I mean food generally. I'm not talking about a carbohydrate-heavy diet here. Uh, We need God for our life. We need to trust God to supply our needs. Israel was hungry, and Israel complained to God. Jesus was hungry, and Jesus learned by experience the lesson that God had taught Israel in history in Deuteronomy 8 and verse 3. I think it's instructive for us to just visit that context briefly because you'll see it says in Deuteronomy 8, 1, Every commandment which I command you today you must be careful to observe that you may live and multiply and go in and possess the land of which the Lord swore to your fathers. And you shall remember that the Lord your God led you all the way these 40 years in the wilderness. Why? To humble you and test you to know what was in your heart, whether you would keep his commandments or not. So he humbled you, allowed you to hunger, and fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. So the Lord had an instructive outcome, an educational objective in giving the people this set of circumstances. I mean, why would he let them be hungry? He wanted to teach them something. And it was important that they learned that lesson. And Jesus is demonstrating that he has learned the lesson. He has learned the word. He obeys the word. He wants to follow the Lord. And so far from complaining for food, Jesus was trusting in God the Father to provide apart from his own inner divine nature which, uh, he, by which he could create food aplenty in an instant. Now, I'll just mention one other, one other thing here. So I guess let me just pause and keep harping on the point. This is about trusting in God, not in self. Trusting in God's wise provision and not uh, going uh, at it, you know, your own way. About five months back in September, we addressed the topic of the impeccability of Christ and somebody raised the question, well, he was able to do this, right? Just like he was able to call uh, legions of angels to come to his aid at the uh, betrayal in, the, in, in another garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, does that make him peccable, actually? And the answer to that is no. Just the, the fact that he was able to do something did not, does not mean or imply that he had the will to do that thing. Okay? So ability does not imply... Uh, ability to do something that in a certain context would be sin does not imply that Jesus could, in fact, sin. No, it was... This, the, the question relates down or goes down to his will. Was he willing to do that? And, of course, here we see he was not willing to do this act of creating bread from stones in this situation because it would have shown a lack of trust in God, and his nature was not such that it could break trust with God. Second temptation, putting God to the test. Verse 5, then the devil took him up into the holy city 
set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. For it is written, He will give his, his angels charge over you, and in their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. Even if accurately quoted, this is a misuse of Scripture, which warns us not to misuse Scripture and put it out of its context or tear it out of its context because we can get into big trouble by doing that. So again, Satan says, assuming you are the Son of God, and I think that's what he's saying here, if indeed you are, and we assume you are for the sake of argument, otherwise you couldn't do this act that I'm about to tell you to do, whether it's making bread or it's throwing yourself down from the temple. This, by the way, the setting of this is interesting because this is probably on the roof of the temple overlooking the great retaining wall that dropped precipitously down into the lowest parts of the Kidron Valley, 450 feet below the pinnacle of the temple. Throw yourself down 45 stories. God will protect you, right? You're the son of God, aren't you? Show us. Satan twisted Psalm 91 and suggested Jesus throw himself down from there and watch God protect him. He was trying to get the man Jesus to sin, to show pride, to put God to the test. If he could do that, then he figured he'd, he, Satan, would probably be able to rule the world forever because the Savior would be discredited and unable to carry out his ministry, his mission. But Jesus knew that the psalm was not about testing God to see if he would protect you. The psalm was about trusting God in difficulty and trials that come as a natural part of life. Uh, we can maybe go back and read the context in Psalm 91 there. Did you get that? It's not about testing God. It's about trusting God. It's about putting our trust in Him when difficult things come. Psalm 91. Oh, let's look at Psalm 91, 3. Surely he shall deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the perilous pestilence. Just because God will deliver you from the snare of the fowler doesn't mean you go looking for snares. You know, like we, tell, we want to tell our young people sometimes, you know, God may graciously deliver you from that sin uh, or friends, uh, so-called friends, or drugs or whatever, but you don't go looking for that stuff. Danger, danger, danger. He will deliver you from the perilous pestilence. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings he, uh, you rather shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. You shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness. I used that verse early on in our pandemic here uh, in the United States. Nor of the destruction that lays waste at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side and ten thousand at your right hand, but it shall not come near you. Only with your eyes you shall look and see the reward of the wicked, because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the Most High, your dwelling place. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. For he shall give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You shall tread upon lion and cobra, the young lion and the serpent. You shall trample underfoot, and so on, because he has set his love upon me. Therefore, I will deliver him. All of that. In none of that do we say, okay, I'm going to go chase after cobras and lions. 
you know, I'm going to I'm going to grab a, a coyote by the tail and see what happens, or or any other number of crazy things. That's why we have always said we're trusting the Lord that He will deliver us from illness, but we're not going doing foolish things to try to go get ourselves in situations where we might get sick. That's silliness. That's worse than silly foolishness. So Jesus responds again with a verse from Deuteronomy chapter 6, which always uh, challenges me when I think of this because I think, you know, how well do I know Deuteronomy? But yet Jesus faced extraordinary temptations with three verses out of Deuteronomy. And I just say to myself, boy, if I don't know Deuteronomy that well, how am I going to be able to face maybe certain temptations that come my way? If I don't have the quote-unquote ammunition that I need, thus an argument for us to be familiar with all of our Scripture. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 16 says, You shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted Him at Massa or put him to the test. The Bible tells us that Israel tested God ten times. That's Numbers chapter 14, verse 22. And Jesus was not about to start that with his father. Third temptation. Third temptation. Idolatry. So the first was satisfy his hunger in an invalid way. The second was uh, to put God to the test. The third, idolatry. Starting in verse number, well, we didn't read seven, I think. Jesus said to him, it is written again, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Now the third, verse eight, again, the devil took him up on an exceedingly high mountain, showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. You know, I don't know, would he take him up on Mount Everest or something? Uh, You know, Kilimanjaro. K2, some high peak. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. And Jesus said to him, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Friends, if you love the world, the love of the Father is not in you. If you are, um, you know, if, if you're. Service is to another master. You cannot serve two masters. The Lord Jesus tells us that. You've got to pick. You've got to choose. You have to decide who's going to be my master, God or my flesh or the world or the devil or whatever. So the temptation here is, look, you'll be able to rule the world. Well, that's, that's going to be the case, isn't it? Jesus will rule the world. But he would not have to go through the cross and the suffering and all that stuff that the Bible presented as necessary for him to do if he would kind of take this shortcut here. And he, you know, so the temptation was spiced up with this reward of reigning over the world without that, uh, without that suffering. The suffering and then the glory to follow. He just wanted the glory. But this would obviously be under Satan's authority because Satan says, I will give this to you. And in some sense, it is his to give. Not completely, of course. God is sovereign over all things. But 1 John 5.19 tells us that the whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, we can say. 
he's in, in kind of in charge. Jesus was promised to rule the world someday, but not at the price of idolatry. Going this route, getting to a legitimate end by illegitimate means, is kind of like what Abraham and Sarah did with Hagar. Remember? We've got to get a promised son. We're not having a son here, so we've got to hurry God's program along and, uh, and take matters into our own hands. Well, you know how that turned out. It wasn't a very good idea. It wasn't the way God promised that it was going to be. And so whenever you try to do, whenever you try to achieve valid ends by invalid means, you're going to run into a failure. Okay? Jesus quoted again from Deuteronomy, this time from chapter 6 and verse number 13. And let's read that a little around that context. Deuteronomy 6, Beware lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt to the house of bondage. You shall fear the Lord your God and serve Him and shall take oaths in His name. And then in Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verse 20, our Lord was intimately familiar with these words. And it says there, you shall fear the Lord your God, you shall serve Him, and to Him you shall hold fast and take oaths in His name. Besides that, the Lord knew the Ten Commandments, right? And there's a commandment in there that says, you shall have no other gods before me. No, God is a jealous God. God alone is the object of proper worship. There is only one God and only one right place to put your worship. And so Jesus said, look, I'm not going to be tricked by all that. You can, you can offer me the world. Actually, he did. And I'm not going to succumb to that temptation. I'm going to worship God no matter what else happens and no matter what the cost. So Satan, or Jesus rather, said to Satan, get out. Get away with you. Away with you, Satan. Leave me alone because I'm worshiping God. I've decided to follow God. You're out of luck. So then verse 11 says, In the aftermath, the devil left him, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. So thankfully, Satan leaves. Now Luke 4.13 adds this little detail. He left him for the time being or until an opportune time came. You can imagine you know, Satan is sitting there thinking, okay, when am I going to get him next? You know, I've got more opportunities here. Well, because he was going to strike at the heel of our Lord, although ultimately the Lord would crush him under his foot. But not at this time. So angels came, ministered to him. Now was the time for God to strengthen his son, Jesus had passed the test, and, and God's will was that his needs be cared for by angelic ministers. And so, in fact, Psalm 91, which the devil misused, actually came to pass. God will give his angels charge over you. He will bear you up. He did when Jesus waited for the time when God decided that to happen. So Israel, as a parallel here, they complained. They were hungry, but they had to learn the lesson of trusting in God. But Israel failed persistently in, 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 the, uh, well, in the Exodus and also throughout their history. 
I mean, in this, just this matter of idolatry, uh, think of the golden calf incident, idolatry. Think of uh, Acts chapter 7 in which uh, Stephen confronts the leaders of the nation of Israel at the time and says, look, your forefathers, when they came out of Egypt, had the star of your god Remphan, and they had Moloch. They carried their banners with them. There was idolatry in the camp even during that time. It was certainly a mixed multitude of believers, some, and unbelievers, many, in that place. Or think of later with Solomon. He had all these intermarriages, and what does the Bible say in 2 Kings, is it 2 or 1 Kings 11, rather, that, that they turned his heart away from God. He built altars to their gods for them. Or even later, around the time of the deportation to Babylon, you have in Jeremiah a mention of the women baking cakes to, to offer them to the queen of heaven. Oh, what are they thinking? That's not worship of God. So Israel failed, failed, failed on all those counts. Jesus succeeded, 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 was victorious. So what do we take from this? Well, a couple things. One, we need to know God's word as well as possible so that we can face temptation with success. I, I can testify to that personally myself. I've had uh, tempting thoughts, situations come, and, uh, and very recently a, a verse of Scripture comes to mind to help me to combat that. You've got to have that. If you, have, if you don't have that, that's like having a gun with no bullets in it. It's like having a bow with no arrows in it. Okay? It's like having a club but no arms to swing it. If you don't have the Word of God hidden away in a way that you can recall it, refer to it. And so hopefully verses will come to mind that we can directly apply to the test. The reason that that Scripture functions this way, is that it comes from God. He has designed the Bible to cover every situation. There's no situation in which you can say, well, you know, God didn't think of that one. I'm facing this circumstance, and there's nothing in the Bible that can apply. That is never true. There's always something in the Word that gives you guidance and helps you. He, and by the way, he's the ultimate authority, so, he will, so it, the Bible, will overrule temptation from any source. You face any temptation, the Bible will help you to face that. Now, I've titled my message tonight, Love and Trust for God in the Temptation of Christ. That love and trust for God will keep you from falling into temptation. If you're related to God with love and trust, then you will desire to know his word and you will desire not to displease him with idolatry and putting him to the test. And I don't know how you could do the first temptation. You can't make things miraculously from stones into bread. But I bet you could find or you could hunt up some bread in another way, maybe by thievery if you were hungry. Instead, you should say, no, I'm not going to you know, reduce myself to that level. I'm not going to sin. I'm going to trust God. I'm going to do, use normal means. I'm going to trust God for the food that he will provide for me. So we face uh, temptations that could be like really any of these in a sense. But the word of God will help us to avoid idolatry, putting him to the test, and satisfying our needs in invalid ways. So hopefully that helps you. But just be you know, kind of 
take this truth with you. God's word will help you face temptation every single time. Use it. Know it so that you can. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this uh, review of these familiar verses of Scripture. Help us to take the Word of God and to uh, use it. And Lord, uh, through many weeks and months and years of, for some of us of reading the Bible, we have become familiar with portions of it, and I pray ever more so, so that we might apply them to circumstances that we face and all the variations that they come to us throughout our, our lives. Thank you for the perfect example of Jesus to deal with temptation and sin. And we pray that he will be honored in our lives this week. I pray a special blessing on those participating tonight here and online and those that will listen in the future with good attention and desire to follow God like Jesus did. Give them success, I pray. Keep our feet from the paths of evil. Incline our hearts to fear you and to do good as we await for the coming of the rapture of the church and the Lord Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.